Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, book nerds, to New Books Network. I am your host, Dr. Lee Pierce, for the channels in language and media and communications. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Zakia Imam Jackson, the author of Becoming Human, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World from NYU Press. Rewriting the pernicious, enduring relationship between blackness and animality in the history of Western science and philosophy, Becoming Human breaks open the rancorous debate between black critical theory and post-humanism. Through the cultural terrain of literature by Toni Morrison, Nalo Hopkinson, Audre Lorde, and Octavia Butler, as well as the art of Wangechi Mutu and Ezram Lahai, and the oratory of Frederick Douglass, Dr. Jackson both critiques and displaces the racial logic that has dominated scientific thought since the Enlightenment. Becoming Human demonstrates that the history of racialized gender and maternity, specifically anti-Blackness, is indispensable to future thought on matter, materiality, animality, and posthumanism. Jackson argues that African diasporic cultural production alters the meaning of being human and engages in imaginative practices of world building against a history of the bestialization and thingification of blackness, the process of imagining the black person as an empty vessel, a non-being, an ontological zero, and the violent imposition of colonial myths of racial hierarchy. She creatively responds to the animalization of blackness by generating alternative frameworks of thought and relationality that not only disrupt the racialization of the human-animal distinction found in Western science and philosophy, but also challenge the epistemic and material terms under which the specter of animal life acquires its authority. What emerges is a radically unruly sense of a being, knowing, feeling existence, one that necessarily ruptures the foundation of, quote, the human. I am excited to dive into the book and so grateful to all of you for joining us as well as Dr. Jackson for being here. Dr. Jackson, are you there? I am. Oh, terrific. Well, we're so happy you could join us on New Books Network today. And I was hoping, uh, well, first of all, do you prefer Dr. Jackson or Zakia? Zakia is fine. Thanks for okay. asking. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, again, I'm so thrilled to have you here. I so enjoyed reading this book. And I was wondering if you could start by just telling the audience a little more about yourself and how you came to write uh, Becoming Human. Uh, Firstly, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. Um, So my name is Zakia Iman Jackson. I'm an assistant professor of English at the University of Southern California. Um, My work generally explores the literary and figurative aspects of Western philosophy and science. And investigates the engagement of African diasporic literature and visual culture with the historical concerns, knowledge claims, and rhetoric of Western science and philosophy. Um, In terms of like the book and how I came to it, um, you know, I knew I wanted to engage a big question Um, pertaining to the meaning and significance of Black existence. And I noticed two things. I noticed that, one, posthumanist account of how how the categories of the human and the animal worked were ahistorical. And I thought that by coordinating off the thingification and bestialization of Blackness, um, they lost track of their object um, and that the history of racialization was actually central rather than subsidiary to what it is that they do um, engage and care about and what's at the center of the project. Um, I also felt that the that post-humanist um, often um, present ontological slippage as authentic and ethical. And I um, felt that that I was, I was troubled by that or concerned by that because um, we know that for so much of black diasporic history, ontological slippage between human and animal human And thing, for instance, has been a racial nightmare rather than something emancipatory. 
Um, and I also notice um, in terms of scholarship on race um, and scholarship in Black studies that there was very little discussion of bestialization. Um, and when there was discussion of bestialization, the discussion was there essentially to make it disappear really quickly, right? And so that there oftentimes an easy dismissal, I think a too easy dismissal of what the operations, uh, dismissal of bestialization and, and not really, a dismissal of bestialization as anti-Blackness or the work of anti-Blackness, but not a real engagement with the operations of bestialization. Um, and so the quick um, dismissal that usually took the form of, well, that is racism, identifying the racism of the creation of Black people and animals, and a simple, straightforward affirmation of Black humanity, um, I felt that that was um, not as... Um, uh, not as effective as maybe people hoped that it would be because um, it didn't really speak to why these practices persist um, and that it affirmed rather than questioned the ethics of humanization itself. And so there was a lack of serious engagement with the question of race in posthumanist scholarship. And then there was also a lack of serious engagement with animality or the animal as such in race studies and from observing these two um, approaches, I uh, said, okay, here's my project. I think that there's something that I can offer to um, this conversation or lack of a conversation across the two fields. Well, yeah, and it's an important point because, you know, when you kind of just say like, oh, I found the bestialization of the black human, that's bad. You don't do what your book is able to do, which is you actually find some very problematic recodings of bestialization throughout the book that are very current. And right. it disrupts this idea that this is something, quote, we used to do. And now we know it's bad and we know it when we see it and it doesn't morph and it doesn't change when in fact, you know, uh, this concept is is now it's in the now all the time in science in literature and you know i i appreciate it and i think it's a i think it's a bold claim that carries itself throughout the book so with that said what do you think is the big reason why people might want to read the book what do you think the big takeaway is uh and maybe you want to speak to a few audiences not just the big takeaway for say posthumanists but maybe a, a general reader who doesn't actually have a disciplinary identification yes okay so um you know, I argue in the book that the human and the animal are metaphysical categories that have material consequences. I maintain that ungendered Black female flesh and maternity acts as a fulcrum for their interrelated discursivity and materiality, largely due to the central role of reproduction um, or the role that reproduction plays in determining species demarcation and the racialization of that function. So in Becoming Human, I trace the production of the human in the history of biology, anthropology, law, and philosophy. And what I find is not Black exclusion. Often, our conception of anti-Blackness is equated with dehumanization, denied humanity, or exclusion. Yet, as Saidia Hartman has identified in her path-breaking study, Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in 19th Century America, the process of making the slave relied on the abjection and criminalization of the enslaved's humanity rather than merely on the denial of it. So with Hartman's insight in mind, I argue that what we have to contend with is more complex than a simple opposition such as inclusion versus exclusion, 
binaristic frameworks such as humanize versus dehumanize and the human versus the animal are insufficient to understand anti-blackness because racism has developed social technologies of recognition in an effort to demean blackness as quote the animal within the human form now this is not to say that expressions and practices of anti-blackness never radically exclude Black people from the category of the human. Rather, the point is that inclusion does not provide a reliable solution because in the main, Black people have been included, one might even say uh, dominated by, um, notions of universal humanity, um, but as the incarnation of abject dimensions of humanity. Thus, Black people are without shelter of rights and protection, whether invited into or locked out of this thing we call the human. Consequently, a transformative approach to being, feeling, and knowing is what's needed rather than the extension of human recognition under the normative conception. My project aims to expose and meditate on the violence of liberal humanism's attempts at humanization. So it is not a book about the happy ideal of human recognition at all, but an investigation of the human in action. And what I find is that the happy ideal, what I suggest is that the happy ideal of being seen and recognized as human in actuality is an alibi for its terrorizing practice. Yeah. And, and you're kind of very insistent on this throughout the book because the book is a lovely oscillation between your interventions into these fields of law and science, uh, kind of showing how they aren't, they aren't anti, but they, they include in order to exclude, so to speak. And then by contrast, you choose all of these African diasporic cultural productions, art and literary texts in order to not exactly like argue for, but carve out how each of these different texts offers what you call gestures of potentiality for blackness. And which, and of course, what you just said is, is you don't mean these texts are the happy, fully productive, fully visible, fully included black subject. They are these gestures of potentiality for, I guess, for lack of a better word, alternate ways to navigate the logics of of inclusion and exclusion. And so how do you see the emancipatory potential? I don't, that's not even the right word, but how do you see these gestures of potentiality kind of uh, working in and against the the logics of anti-Blackness that you see happening in the disciplines that you study? Great. So, um, yeah, thank you, um, for that synthesis. Um, yeah. Um, so in terms of gestures of potentiality, so the modes of being examined in the book in the African diasporic literary and, um, visual works do not advocate for politics based on rights and entitlements under the law for because of, you know, the very reason I just mentioned, like that black humanity is recognized at the site of criminalization. Right. And so um, it, it's, they're not advocating for rights and entitlements under the law. Um, but that the, the gestures that they point to or the ways that they gesture um, is undergirded by demands that are criminalized, pathologized, are is, are simply illegible to and by no, the normative mode of the human. These demands emerge from a different way of being, knowing, feeling existence than the ones that are legible and codified in law and the dialectics of man. And so the... Expressive works I'm looking at, they're pointing to kind of transient and fleeting expressions of potentiality that don't currently have a locus, but um, 
emerge through an investment with in creativity, the imagination and speculation as a site of contestation. And they are um, grappling with this space that we are in, which is this space that is um, hard to map between um, legal emancipation and substantial freedom, the you know putative formal end of colonialism and um, the dream of decolonization. And so they speak to a, a kind of, of a virtual space of potentiality that um, is not complete. Um, it is, these gestures are incomplete, but they point to a desire and a world upending claim that is not currently recognized in the social that gave rise to them. Yeah, and that's really good. And, and one of the things I think the listener hopefully can understand is that even I'm struggling after reading this book to still get out of what we call um, like uh, logics of inclusion exclusion, right? So that that idea of right, like kind of re recodifying space as opposed to just including or excluding or rights or no rights. So it's, I mean, it's a book that really challenges how I thought of what it means to quote include or recognize historically oppressed subjects. I mean, it really challenged my brain to think about different work, even just basic vocabulary for for making the argument you were trying to make as opposed to the way that my binary brain wants to think about it. And one of the concepts you introduce is this concept of plasticizing, right? Plasticity. And essentially, not to be repetitive, but you argue that anti-Blackness historically has not, in fact, been about just simply reducing or excluding Blackened people as animals or as non-subjects, right? But rather plasticizing them so that the humanity animality can keep being reproduced in different ways to serve this ongoing project of biopolitical colonialism. Is that how you're understanding the word plasticizing? Or could you maybe tell us more about that? Because I found it to be an incredibly useful term. Yeah. You know, I actually really appreciate you repeating it because, um, you know, I think it is very hard. It's, it's not you. I think it's very, very hard to get out of these logics of inclusion versus exclusion, humanization versus dehumanization. And, you know, one of the, the ways that I try to try to um, kind of fill that out is to maybe start with suggesting that um, that the human is not a unitary sign with uniform effects, but rather a racially stratified and stratifying concept. As I stated before, and as you repeat it, the book is not about exclusion or denied humanity or dehumanization. Rather, the book concerns the imposition of a racialized con- conception of Black humanity. Um, and so already there, I'm um, trying to introduce this idea that the category of the human itself is, it's cut and the cut where it is the cuts produce different formations with different histories and different effects so that i argue recognition and inclusion are extended in the interest of plasticizing that very humanity whereby the animal is one but not the only form blackness is thought to encompass Plasticity is a mode of transmogrification whereby the fleshly being of Blackness is experimented with as if it were infinitely malleable lexical and biological matter, such such that Blackness is produced as human, subhuman, superhuman at once. To put it in My concept of plasticity maintains that Blackened people 
are not so much as dehumanized as non-humans, are cast as liminal humans, nor are Black and people framed as animal-like or machine-like, but are cast as sub, supra, and human simultaneously and in a manner that puts being in peril because the operations of simultaneously being everything and nothing for an order constructs Black and humanity as both the privation and exorbitance of form. The demand for willed privation and exorbitance I describe does not take the form of serialized demands for serialized states, but demands that Black and humanity be all forms and no form simultaneously. For instance, human, animal, machine, object. Black study scholars have often interpreted the predicament of Black being in relation to either liminality, uh, movement from one state to another state, or interstice being in between states, and um, or as partial states, right? Partially human, partially animal. What I'm suggesting is that these approaches are subtended by a demand that tends towards the fluidification of state or ontology. This demand for statelessness collapses a distinction between the virtual and the actual, abstract potential and situated possibility, whereby the abstraction of Blackness is enfleshed via an ongoing process of resting form from matter such that raciality's materialization is that of a dematerializing virtuality. This approach also departs from how plasticity has been talked about in the sciences and in popular science in particular, right? So plasticity in those contexts is usually framed in terms of a kind of ableist promise of the optimization of life, a cure for autism, um, or a, a cure from, for autism or in homophobic or transphobic keys of, you know, how do we figure out how people become queer or trans and then how can we correct that, right? So that this idea of potential um, often stays inside a certain kind of eugenic imagine, uh, eugenic imaginary. Um, but I'm saying that that eugenic imaginary is underwritten by a shadow history of experiments with Blackness, a praxis that seeks to define the essence of a Blackened thing as infinitely malleable um, in anti-Black, often paradoxical, sexuating terms as a means of hierarchically delineating sex and gender, reproduction, and states of being more generally. Yeah. And at some point in the book, I just thought about this. You do this really awesome move where you name, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe what you're doing is naming all of the names. Henrietta, yeah. So it's page 198. Henrietta, Lucy, Anarka, Betsy, Sarjeet. Are they the names that they gave, that, that, the, that, the, that the white doctors gave the black slave subjects when they wrote the books about the, like the, the experimental treaties on their bodies? Is that what those names are? Right. Yes. So, okay. Yes, I'm. I'm interested in there of uh, marking these experiments um, in the on the plantation, but also as part of Western colonial science um, in Europe and in Africa. Yeah, I thought it was an, It was a. It was something I hadn't seen done before, and I immediately was thinking about this list of names. Um, so that was really that was really poignant. And it, that also brings us uh, to your insightful read of Paul D. and Mr. the Rooster from Toni Morrison's Beloved, um, which you articulate to Frederick Douglass's 1845 narrative and an 1873 speech on kindness to animals. And as, uh, uh, based on the book, you're one of the sort of first people to really take seriously Mr. the Rooster in the novel. So can you tell us more about that and how it relates to some of the dominant themes of the book? 
Yeah. So, um, Frederick Douglass's narrative of a life, I think for many people is their first introduction to the routine, uh, bestialization of plantation life. And I think that it functions like an urtext, um, and its scenes function like a primal scene. And I think that there's a way that people, um, read, uh, the, the slave narrative form, um, sometimes not even like a literary genre, but uh, a kind of testimony or a tr- like a, a transference of historical fact, right? This is a transparent account of the historical past. Um, and I wanted to make the scenes uh, in the narrative um, strange. And I felt like I needed to do that if I wanted people to, if I wanted readers, if I wanted Black readers to be open to what I was saying in the book about the need to dissolve both the human and the animal as metaphorical categories, to relinquish um, the ideal and desire for inclusion. Um, And so I felt like I needed to um, introduce some irony um, and make that text more, make that text unfamiliar um, in order to clear some space. Um, and so I think that his 1873 speech on kindness to animals, um, does that work. And it's really interesting because I actually found that speech through reading work, um, in animal studies, but primarily, um, in the, in the vein of, uh, animal rights literature and the, the constant recalling of, this speech by Douglas, um, and I went and I found it um, in the archive and I pulled it up and was really surprised by what I found, which was that there was um, so much of that speech had to be cropped in order for it to um, function smoothly within a kind of contemporary animal rights um, Mm -hmm. platform, even though it was constantly being circulated in animal rights literature. Um, And so the speech was given at the Colored Fairgrounds um, in Tennessee in 1873. And it was this speech that was on civic pedagogy, right? Where Frederick Douglass is speaking to this group of Black people about um, how to be a citizen. Um, and so it's really pedagogical. And in that speech, smuggled in that speech, um, are some ideas about the need for Black people to be obedient subjects of law um, and a investment in palliative, palliative um, approaches to um, reform and humane um, treatment, um, uh, human, the palliative reform in um, our treatment of animals and a, um, a loosening, but also a deep commitment to hierarchies of reason and feeling. Now, what was striking for me as, as a scholar of Black studies was that these logics of, of stewardship were the logics of stewardship of slavery. Um, um. That it was actually, a, he was extending these logics into the domain of moving from how to kindly treat your slaves to how you should kindly treat animals. Um, and it was um, 
really surprising for me because of the ways that um, both the kind of stature um, and oftentimes uncomplex ways that Frederick Douglass is kind of memorialized um, in Black history and also the ways that his speech had to be um, selectively edited in order to um, make him a smooth, easy subject of, uh, of a certain kind of animal rights politic. And so the logics that he were was advancing um, for inside, inside of those logics, Black people, as well as animals, neither one are in the position of being a self or an other, but mm. are sub-other. Mm. So what's at stake for me in what we might call intersubjectivity between Paul D and Mr. The Rooster, um, which I don't call intersubjectivity, I call correspondence um, to both, you know, invite us to recall both kind of similarities and similarities in um, how they're positioned, but also in terms of a dialogic, um, a dialogic, dialogic possibilities in their positionality is um, some other way. What's at stake for me is some other way of relate, uh, other way of being and relating that is exterior to the self, uh, self other dyad. Hmm. And then um, just because I don't want to take it for granted, anyone's read it. Will you give a quick overview of like, who is Paul D and who are Mr. The Rooster? And then how do you see that correspondence kind of taking shape in the book? Yeah. So like, uh, like, like a quick summary, it doesn't need to be fancy. <laughs> yeah. So um Ooh, okay, so Beloved is a uh, what we would call a neo-slave narrative. So its setting is um, the historical past, but the dilemmas and the predicament it's taking up are um, being articulated through um, the predicaments of Black people in the present. And so we might say that it works um, somewhat allegorically. So rather than being about the past, it's a much more about um, the predicament of Black people in the American project um, and is, I would say, much more about the present than it is about the past. And it, But the past is seen as being connected to the present, um, but it's really trying to think through um, how we got here and and what is here. Um, and so that's like, I would say, a kind of general description of the book. And Paul D is a, um, a uh, former slave who is trying to build a life for himself in the North with a woman that he at one time um, was captive with on the same plantation. And on that plantation, there was a rooster name um, that they called Mr. And the... I look at a scene of an exchange of glances um, between Mr. and Paul D and um, offer a, um, an interpretation about um, what opens up through um, the politics of, what opens up with respect to the politics of sex, gender, and reproduction through um, an encounter between them. Yeah, and if I could read a little bit, if you don't mind, on page 69, um, this because this reading of the, of these glances between this rooster and Paul D are, are really, 
really illuminating. I actually went back and read Beloved after I read this, and I just couldn't I couldn't believe I hadn't seen it before because your explanation of it made it seem so obvious. And yet, as you pointed out, many people, I mean, Beloved's been studied a lot. And so it's remarkable that you're the first person to kind of bring light to this. But on page 69, you write, in describing his presumably indispensable role in Mr.'s birth, Paul D. both identifies with and abjects the hen, realizing that he has thus far been blind to crucial aspects of slavery's gendered violence his initial response is to displace those feelings onto Mr. as representative of a loss of the illusion of a proper gendered role. And it is this natality, this irreducible femininity that Paul D. resents as Mr. reminds him of the plasticity of his manhood, or more precisely, that such plasticity represents the impossibility for an unqualified manhood to take hold, right? So this language of identifies with and objects, displaces onto and accepts. I mean, the glances are back and forth, back and forth. He's perceiving Rooster, uh, Mr. Perceiving him. I mean, it's really dynamic and fascinating. And I think speaks to exactly your point, which is the way that um, black manhood in this chapter, especially is plasticized for the purpose of ongoing colonial projects. Yeah. Yeah. And that, um, that moment for me partially comes out of me wanting to tarry with and um, add complexity um, and even question some of the basic assumptions of Derrida's work on the animal. And mm. in that work, the gaze, um, he shares this story about, I think he gets out of the shower and his cat is there. and. Yes. He has this exchange of glances between him and his cat, and it becomes this um, uh, story that launches a conversation about the relationship between um, animality and um, logics of sex difference and what he calls um, Western philosophy as a bestiary. And so I um, was struck by this moment because I think it situates what it is that Derrida says in that essay, The Animal That Therefore I Am More to Follow. It situates what Derrida says in that essay and um, shows the ways that Derrida's logics are cut by racialization and um, that the... Uh, conclusions that Derrida comes to in relationship to human exceptionalism, human privilege, um, don't work in the instance of Blackness and don't work in the instance of Black manhood. Yeah. So you actually see in the, in the, in the, the rooster, in the Mr. Paul D relationship, you actually almost see Morrison exceeding Derrida's own argument, <laughs> right? Like, like Derrida is held back by these kind of implicit whiteness assumptions that he can't get past because of his milieu. And you see Morrison almost being more Derridian than Derrida in that beloved scene. If that seems fair to you, it might not seem fair. Agreed. But that's what it feels. That's what it feels like to me. So, you know, as usual, Toni Morrison wins. <laughs> um, and then and then jumping to the end of the book, you intervene in a, in a different field, which is this to kind of get it back to the science angle, this emerging field of epigenics. And specifically, you use Audre Lorde's writings about black women and cancer and the collage work of Wengechi Mutu. And unfortunately, I will put a link to some of the uh, Mutu images, these these multimodal collages, in the show notes of the episode if anyone wants to see them. Unfortunately, we, we don't have any way of showing them to you, but they are definitely one of the highlights of the book. And actually, you include some lovely, I can't even imagine what this costs from the publishers, but you include some lovely full page, full color images of the collages in the center of the book. It really helps bring home the point. And so how, on your view, does the... Um, the current, you know, like biological, genetic, epigenetic uh, literature from science studies, how does it kind of like take black and female flesh as the limit point of the human? And then how do Lord and Mutu reconfigure those assumptions? Because this is kind of parallel to your claim about Derrida, right? That Derrida can't get to where Derrida wants to get because of this abject point of blackness that he either can't see behind, can't see can't see to work through or isn't able to see to work through, but then Morrison is. And I, I see, we, I think we see that, um, that, uh, in, in capacity repeated in the epigenetics literature. Yeah. Um, so 
I guess just like coming, just um, thinking about what I was saying in the beginning about that we typically think about um, species demarcations um, through sexual reproduction or through reproduction and that that function of reproduction and the maternal body has been a racialized one, right? And so the burden of the limit of the human species has rested on the um, Black female ungendered um, reproductive body. So those names, Sarji, um, mm, otherwise mm-hmm. known as the hot and hot Venus, um, Henrietta's and Henrietta Lacks, um, Anarka, Betsy, um, people who were experimented on um, by Marianne Sims in order to give us gynecology, the history of exploring the limit of this category we call the human has um, rested disproportionately on um, Black female bodies um, as specimen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the moving kind of forward to the contemporary moment, there has been an ongoing conversation that has hit the mainstream press about reproductive health inequities, um, whether it's infant mortality rates or maternal death. Um, And that discussion in, say, the regulatory sciences, public health, um, epidemiology, largely the focus has historically been on, is it the DNA? Is it DNA or is it, um, uh, uh, it, or let me back up. So is race DNA mm. or is it socially constructed? Mm. Um, and so, um, the idea, the the controversy around whether or not race is biological has rested on this question of DNA, and that has really obscured um, the ways that race is biologized, so that it is taken into the body and actually is formative of the organismic body. And so when we stay inside this frame of is race genetic or not, we still stay inside a frame of genetic determinism. Mm -hmm. And a reaction to that, which is to say, no, no, race is socially constructed, that also doesn't totally break with the um, geneticist argument. It just says, well, after the Human Genome Project, we now know that race is not genetic. But both of those approaches really obscure the ways that racialized environments are lived biologically. Um, And so in the chapter, I'm trying to move away from the spectacle of the um, genetic status of racialization in order to make sense of uh, the reproductive health inequities as not rooted in a body that is like wholly socially constructed nor a body that is wholly um, reducible to DNA as some kind of um, substratum or mechanistic causation. Um, Because I think that with both of those approaches, um, what slips through our fingers is the material body itself and its process of materialization. Um, which is about a choreography between um, biology and um, semiotics. And so um, 
in the literature uh, in on public health or racial health inequity, race has largely been treated as a variable or indexical to a type of body rather than an, an rather than an ecology. And so, I think what Muchu and Lord introduce is an ecological approach to mm. the. Realization and developmental process of the unfolding of a body. And so that ecology, um, race as an ecology, is determinant of the materializations of materialization of bodies writ large and disease frequencies across populations and the making of racialized populations as opposed to anti-blackness or race happening only to black people or somehow um, anchored in this body. It is in fact anchored in an ecology and it has differential effects based on its differential praxis. Um, Mm. That bodies materialize through this differential um, production uh, our differential operations of of racialization, um, and that that process cannot be accounted for in the constructivist approach, nor in the um, you know what Sylvia Winter would call biocentric or um, uh, DNA reductive approach. And I think Mutu and Lord provide a way for us to understand these reported incomparable racial health inequities in reproductive health as not a matter of inferior biology, um, nor of inferior cultural habits, but as the somaticization of racialized terror. Yeah. And again, I I mean, you really, the art really (laughs) is incredibly good support for this argument. So I can't encourage people enough to take a look at the Wangichi Mutu collages and that I will link in the show notes. Uh, and so with that, um, you know, we've only, as with these really fascinating books that are such deep dives into complex topics, we haven't even touched on your work with uh, Naolo Hopkinson's Brown Girl in the Ring or Octavia Butler's Bloodchild um, and Insect Poetics, but we are kind of coming up on time. So is there anything left in the book, a specific piece, a specific argument, a specific artifact that you really want to make sure comes to the fore before we kind of wrap up and leave the reader to um, go get the book and, and enjoy the rest of what we haven't been able to touch on? Yeah, I guess maybe the last thing I will say is that, um, you know, I think that we have largely ignored alternative conceptions of being and the non-human that are produced by Black people and in African diasporic um, cultural expressive forms. I think because we are still um, seduced by this idea that to be recognized as human will somehow provide safety, um, will somehow provide safety, or is um, is a some is a kind of solution. But I think that when we look closer, what we find is that so often the prelude to violence to terror to domination is actually the recognition of aspects that are seen as uniquely aspects of being that are seen as uniquely uniquely human uh language sentience feeling Mm. um making kin um that those things actually become the inroads for the kinds of violence that we understand as dehumanization will will, free will, for instance, Mm. Um, and that those things become actually what is criminalized. So I think that if we read African diasporic literature and art philosophically for its philosophical premises, interventions, and implications of these forms and traditions, I think that we get, um, not all the time, but uh, 
quite often, more often than we recognize, um, very powerful theses on religion, on theology, on political theory, um, on ontology, on epistemology. And it's really exciting to have written a book that, you know, I hoped would participate in a really um, amazing moment that's happening in Black cities where we're seeing so many Black voices um, participating in critical theory, but participating in critical theory on our own terms. Mm. Um, And so I think what surfaces in that process is a decentering and hopefully uh, produces um, the sense of an urgent need for the dissolution of dominant logics of all kinds, including those that underwrite feminism, animal studies, and posthumanism. Yeah. And I will say, you know, this book is such, I just love books that do this so well, which is that, that the, the literary, the literary and cultural texts are no less literary or cultural than the science texts, right? It's all text. And as a result of your willingness to look at things like that, you come away with just a rich reconsideration of some of the, um, you say it's a project of redefining terms, right? So instead of just taking these dominant terms from feminism and animal studies and posthumanism and epigenetics, you you keep pushing back on them and emerging with these alternative frameworks like plasticization, like uh, black matter, like... Um, like you said, ecology, right, instead of epigenetics. So thank you so much. And I, can, again, cannot recommend this book enough. And it's proof, I mean, of how valuable the humanities continues to be in, quote, unquote, a STEM world, for sure. So that's another great reason to pick up the book. And do you, uh, I love to ask people what they're reading, if you have any new books that you would like to recommend for the next interview, maybe? Yes. Okay. I'm going to go with two. Okay. Um, Sabrina Strings, um, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, and Toby Walsh's Going Stealth, Transgender Politics and U.S. Surveillance Practice. And and it was strings like heartstrings? Yep. With an S at the end. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I, all right, well, I will be reaching out to both of them and see if they would like to come on. Well, thank you again so much, Dr. Jackson, for joining me today on New Books Network to discuss the book, Becoming Human, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World from New York University Press. And just as a quick reminder to everyone, we'd love for you to pick up a copy of the book, but if that's not something you'd like to do, if you've gotten your fill uh, fill here today, consider buying a copy and donating to your public library. You know, budgets are strapped across the country right now. And this is the kind of book that would just be fabulous to have on our public shelves for anyone to pick up for years to come. And you can also ask your university library to purchase a copy. Although again, um, you know, after COVID, I hesitate to ask anyone to ask anyone to pay for anything. So always consider if you find the work valuable, actually just making the donation and either reading the book yourself or giving it to the world. So with that said, it's been wonderful having you. I hope everyone is um, staying socially connected, but physically distanced. And we will talk to you next time.